Scano Segoani, Bojo, Kwekwe, Tansi, and good morning and welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, in Toronto at 106.5 and in Ottawa at 95.7 FM. We thank you for listening this morning. And of course, you can always uh, listen right across uh, Canada by downloading the Radio Canada app and uh, typing in 106.5 FM or 95.7 FM and listen anywhere you want across the country, and of course, uh, through our website, anywhere around the world. Welcome to the show. This morning, we have a very special guest uh, in our studios, James Cullingham, and he is a Canadian-born filmmaker. He's a writer and he's an educator. He's spent time in journalism at Seneca College, and he's the president of Tamarack Productions in Toronto. And he's uh, directed and produced award-winning documentary films, in uh, some about indigenous rights, history, and pulture, uh, cult- popular culture. Uh, he has a PhD in history from York University, and uh, he is a fluent bilingual in French and has a working knowledge of Spanish, which uh, means he has two more languages than I do, although I have dabbled in some French and spent some time uh, uh, trying to utilize that over the, over the time. But I think uh, he, he's also known for a documentary series, As Long as the River Flows, back in 1991. And I, I believe that was perhaps one of the first uh, Tamarack productions that you uh, spent time on. Is that correct, James? Yeah, we launched the company with As Long as the Rivers Flow. Um, it was an opportunity with uh, Peter Raymont, now of White Pine Pictures, then of Investigative Pictures. But we brought together people like Gil Cardinal and Tantu Cardinal and Loretta Todd and Hugh Brody and Boyce Richardson and others. So it was um, the first comprehensive national look at um, leading um, Aboriginal settler issues from coast to coast to coast in Canada that involved both Indigenous and non-Indigenous filmmakers. It, we started, I launched the company with it in 1989. The films were released in 1991. Why did you think that was important to do at that time? Because of the um, aching silences in mainstream media, which I was part of. I was at uh, CBC Radio throughout uh, the five or six years prior. And I had some frustration. I had some satisfaction, but I had some frustration in uh, getting the kinds of stories that I felt were important, having lived in northern Ontario to some extent, having some f- um, relationships with First Nations communities and issues of property rights and uh, environmental issues. I conceived the series along with other people, and um, it turned out that um, it wasn't something at that time the CBC was interested in. However, um, we did manage to get uh, interest from um, the international francophone um, network, TV5, and also TV Ontario, and in uh, the National Film Board of Canada. Mm-hmm. So I took leave from... CBC Radio to uh, launch that series and in order to do so created Tamarack Productions. Uh, welcome to the show, by the way. And it's great that you're able to be here. It's an honor. Thank you very much, David. This is what I'd like to, can you take us back a little bit? What led you into looking and, I mean, you just explained that to some degree, but, but you actually studied uh, Native Studies, I believe, uh, when you were at university. Yeah, I was... Um, at Trent University, and the program was called Native Studies then. Um, just prior to that, I, I had been studying history in French. Mm. I'd taken some time off, and I ended up working. I have a background in outdoor education and wilderness canoeing. 
And I got a job with the Kenora Children's Aid Society uh, as a kind of uh, child care worker, outdoor educator. Mm. Mm. Um, and that uh, was a shocking eye-opener <laughs> in terms of the condition of uh some of the communities in um, northwestern Ontario, but what was worse was the ingrained attitudes at the Kenora Children's Aid Society at that time. I mean, it was late 1970s, and, um, you know, we were discouraged from allowing the children to speak their own language, Ojibwe or Oji Cree. Um, the official designation of their um, standing was that they were culturally deprived because they were of indigenous background. That was the language that oh, was of used. Course. <laughs> so it's like a very much still part of the mindset, you know, of the residential school era. Mm. Unfortunately, mm. it's at the tail end of that. But unfortunately, it was alive and well at the Kenora Children's Aid Society, apparently. Yeah. So um, it was an eye-opener. I had students from White uh, I had not students. Uh, some of the children in care mm. were from places like White Dog and Grassy Narrows. Wow. So the mercury pollution thing was going on in the English Wabagoon system. So um, as I said, it opened my eyes. When I went back to Trent, I switched into Native Studies. Mm. So um, finished up uh, my degree there. And um, as a storyteller in documentary and as a print journalist and as a historian, mm. I mean, as your intro said, hasn't been my sole mm-hmm. area of uh, right. investigation, but right. it's been it's been an important one. And I... I think to this day it remains Canada's number one human rights challenge. Mm. So I I hope there's quality journalism being done by all kinds of people. So you said you spent time in the north. Uh, You said mentioned Kenora. Mm. Um, Did you spend, did you go any further further north at all than that? Well, a little further south, I spent a a great deal of time in Lake Tomogamy area. And uh, people of the Temagam and Anishinaabe yep, yep, are yep. very close friends of mine. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm involved to this day with a wilderness center based at the north end of Lake Temagam, Iwanapate. So um, that's been going on since the 1970s mm-hmm. and, and continues. And um, Iwanapate and the Temagam and Anishinaabe and the former Chief Gary Potts have very close ties with Trent University that are ongoing. Mm-hmm. So, okay. um, in that sense, that um, that that circle is uh, unbroken, and uh, it's uh, been a a real source of education and uh, fulfillment um, for me. And I've done, I did a lot of work um, about um, tomography um, on radio, mm. in print, and um, academically. What what. Did you learn from that process of making that documentary? As long as the river slow? Yeah. Um, a whole bunch. A um, whole bunch of things that I th- hope I'm still learning. Um, mm-hmm. I learned of the extraordinary breadth and talent uh, in um, First Nations, uh, Métis, and Inuit storytelling circles. Um, and I forged relationships. You know, my um, unfortunately uh, deceased um, friend, Bill Cardinal, you know, we continued to work together for about 10 years um, after that, frequently on various things. And, uh, you know, Tantu uh, Cardinal uh, has been a colleague and a good friend since Mm. then. She was the um, television host of the series. Mm. And um, she narrated uh, Alex Williams' uh, very powerful film, The Past System, on which I was executive producer. So as recently as three years ago, we were still working together. Mm. Um, So... In terms of forging 
relationships, professional relationships and friendships, it was hugely important. It was also, I think, um, even though I had been, you know, in a Native Studies program mm-hmm. and I traveled the country to some extent, I also began to understand the extraordinary, or better understand, the extraordinary diversity of Indigenous communities across Canada and the uh, various forms of spirituality, economic practices, political organization. So I hope I'm still pushing back. There is, I think, unfortunately, still sometimes in what we can call the mainstream media, a tendency to think, well, Indigenous people in Canada, that means this. Well, of course, it means many, 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 many things. Mm. And there are many different voices and there are many different points of view and there are many different experiences. And um, so I, I hope doing the series sensitized me to being having very open ears and eyes and being uh, conscious and sensitive to that diversity rather than assuming that there is an Aboriginal voice in Canada. Um, I think there are, as I said, Aboriginal voices. So I think the series attuned me to that. And historically, I mean, Hugh Brody, you know, who worked on the series, is a brilliant British-born author and filmmaker. You know, he was talking way back in the 70s and 80s as a, as a non-Indigenous storyteller about Canada's comprehensive assault on the First Nations. Mm. And as a young person in the 1980s, you go, comprehensive assault? <laughs> but then, but of course, when you start looking at when you actually start sure. looking at the history, you realize Duncan Campbell Scott, about whom I've made a film and others, yes. knew precisely what they were doing, yeah. and it was a comprehensive assault. Yeah. And it was part of nation building. I mean, I call it now Canada's Manifest Destiny. Yeah. And if we're going to be serious about reconciliation, we have to be truthful. So we have to recognize that assault. And I think the series helped tune my mind to looking at that as with as much reflection and accuracy as possible. As I was looking over your, your material uh, and I saw Duncan Campbell Scott, my, my eyebrows raised there because I thought, ooh, what, uh, what, what is the, the approach that he's taking with, with this, uh, this man? So uh, what what did you learn from going down that road? Well, I'm still going down that road in that I'm working on a book manuscript about okay. him and about mm. um, a French ethnologist named and politician named Jacques Soustelle. And they, they were the subjects of my, uh, of my dissertation history. But um, we came across Scott, of course. I mean, I'd come across him as a student at Trent uh, in the in late 70s and early 80s. But uh, in doing as long as the river's slow, I mean, anytime you research sure. the period yep. up until the Second World War, there yep. he is again yep. and again and again and again. Sure. So when I began to realize in conversations with Hugh Brody, with Gil Cardinal, with Loretta Todd, I started asking, well, what about this guy, yeah. Scott? <clears throat> they encouraged me to direct a film about him. <clears throat> and uh, so that film, Duncan Campbell Scott, The Poet and the Indians, came out in 1995 it's having a bit of a resurgence at the moment. Mm. I'm showing it in a number of places, including mm. recently again at Trent. Um, and anybody who wants to see it, please contact Tamarack Productions. Um, but I think it was important, and I think it's still important, to realize that Scott represented the best and brightest of the Canadian elite mm. during his career. Mm-hmm. A highly respected poet, a highly respected civil servant, he served liberal governments, he served conservative governments, and he was enacting the policy that was approved again and again and again by the Parliament of Canada. Mm-hmm. And it was aggressive civilization, yes. 
It was an effort to ramp up Canada's assimilation project towards Indigenous people in Canada. He was responsible for residential schools. Um, and we know that, um, I mean, we have Supreme Court justices calling those policies tantamount, tantamount to cultural genocide. Right. So I guess my question about Scott going back from the 1990s and even today in 2019 is, what does that say about Canadian settler society? Mm-hmm. This man who was eminent right. um, represented Canadian mainstream views. And to what extent are Canadians willing to look at that history directly and then ask themselves, what can we do in our time and going forward to, to correct these horrendous injustices? And I think that for me, Scott has been an extremely perplexing and troubling and fascinating uh, window into that. Mm. Um, and he was a just an extraordinary complex character because he, I mean, he was an accomplished writer. Mm. Um, he lost a child early in his own life. It, right. um, he suffered tremendous, as all mm. people, tremendously, mm. as all people do in different ways. But this was the guy, you know, when he died, the leading newspapers and magazines in the country said he was Canada's unofficial poet laureate mm. and had done so much right. for the Indian people of Canada. Right. Um, and uh, so it wasn't like he was, you know, off on his own trip mm-hmm. committing evil. Right. He was doing what he did right. in the name of the Canadian people. Right. So uh, do you think... Well, from your own experience, looking back in the things that you have uh, participated in, whether it be filmmaking, journalism, uh, teaching in journalism, uh, studying journalism, being a part of uh, the Canadian broadcast industry as well as film industry and and writing, what do you think has changed in the time that you've been involved, if anything? In storytelling about in this area of the quality of journalism? I like to think it's marginally better. I hope it's not a flavor of the month mm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we all, uh, I'm, I'm sure, um, you know, any process uh, has its weaknesses, but I think we do owe a debt to uh, the Truth and Reconciliation mm. Commission for mm-hmm. opening eyes yep. and ears. I think that your efforts and this station's efforts are wonderful. I think what APTN is doing is extremely important. I think that there are uh, a number of journalists, you know, whether they're at the Globe Mail or the McLean's or La Presse or elsewhere, there are a number of journalists doing, I think, very solid Mm. work Mm. on um, indigenous settler issues and on resource issues in Western Canada. You know, uh, the discourse, the tie, there's kind of like alternate uh, media that is – that uh, certainly involves Indigenous storytellers, but Mm. it's not Indigenous-owned or Indigenous-run, to my knowledge. But they've set themselves the task of of doing those investigations and telling those stories well. So all that's good. Mm. Um, I think that there are still weaknesses, um, and there's still a great deal of work to be done. And at times... um, I mean, there's been a whole range of opinion through the media expressed about the Jody um, Wilson-Raybould situation. Right. Mm-hmm. But some of it I found um, troubling. I mean, some of it, 
um, sort of categorizing her narrowly as, uh, you know, an indigenous woman, therefore. Um, as I say, there was a whole range of stuff, but mm-hmm. I think we see some of the weaknesses still, some of the assumptions made mm. about um, about that situation, and people, people can judge for themselves, but I think um, it displayed some weaknesses in the assumptions that were made about her attitudes as an Indigenous woman and as a, a member of, uh, of Justin Trudeau's cabinet. Can, so I th- sorry, sorry, can I just get you to explain what you mean by weaknesses? Uh, weaknesses on whose part and, and what do you mean by that? Um, I think the weaknesses are on the part of the major news organizations okay. primarily. Mm-hmm. And I think they are primarily on um, the part of journalists who are assuming knowledge about First Nations uh, history and about communities without actually having that knowledge. And once again, the uh, a weakness is the tendency to um, to assume mm-hmm. that there is a single indigenous point of view, um, and that if there's an indigenous person in a certain situation, like a Jody Wilson-Raybould, well, that is that's all indigenous people, mm. which is on the face of it, absurd. And and that and that those kinds of assumptions, it seems to me, are not made routinely by people working for those major organizations um, when they're doing their jobs well. So why does it happen when they're dealing in that area? There's less of it happening, but I still think it does happen. And I hope um, things are improving and will continue to improve. But I think that... Um, Certainly people in your chair um, need to be vigilant about it because there's been a hell of a lot. There has been a lot of really bad journalism and, uh, and, and, you know, and we need much less of that and much more uh, well-done journalism. Is it uh, from your own experience again, going back to as a professor now, I'm wondering about what you see looking at your students. Do you see uh, a more openness? Do you still, if you explain something that that you've learned, and this is the first time perhaps that, that well, <laughs> I've answered my own question to some degree, but do you see surprise on their faces when they when they still learn about about what Canada has done to Indigenous people? Oh, yeah. Um, a little less so, mm-hmm. um, but, um, you know, I was speaking to students at the University of Toronto just um, as recently as... Um, last month. Mm-hmm. And certainly the, I mean, they're very motivated, highly intelligent students, mm-hmm. but there were basic facts of the career of Duncan Campbell Scott, which I was asked to speak about, which are pretty fundamental Canadian history, certainly fundamental to this part of Canadian history, mm-hmm. that were absolute news to them, mm-hmm. absolute news to mm-hmm. them. And this is, these are, well, the elite University of Canada, I think we'd have to say. Right. And they're fourth year students. Right. And somehow... They hadn't got that email. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, but I do think things have improved. And um, I was very fortunate to teach for 18 years at Seneca College, an extraordinarily diverse group of students whose they and or their parents had come from all over the world. And what I found encouraging was that uh, students whose roots were in Latin America or in uh, India or Pakistan or Africa, um, were very receptive to learning about indigenous settler history in Canada. Mm. And it wasn't, I'm generalizing, 
but for obvious reasons of decolonization, it it, it was less shocking to them. Sure. We're sort of like, oh yeah, well, Canada's part of, yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> right. that, that that that's how the world works. Yeah. Whereas still, you know, um, as we would say in French, Canadien de Pourlaine, you know, I would once again, I'm generalizing. Mm-hmm. But students from with European roots who had been in Canada longer tended to be more readily shocked. Not to say they weren't receptive to learn about that, because I was teaching Canadian history at mm-hmm. Seneca as well, and yeah. and, and credit Seneca and other colleges because it was very clear in our curriculum that you know we had to up our game and make sure that this was part of the curriculum, and the students were sign of hope, extremely receptive. But I would suggest that the newer Canadians were even more receptive. So I find that found that positive. Okay. And also very int- and also um, around the horrible situation concerning uh, Colton Bushi, and forgive my pronunciation, mm. I think it is Bushi, and his killing in uh, Saskatchewan. There was kind of a consciousness raising event organized by uh, Seneca First Nations and others that took place at the campus where I taught, Seneca at York. And students from every faculty came. I mean, the room was packed. And uh, I just thought once again, well, um, I don't think there was this kind of sensitivity 10 or 20 years ago. So as, a, as an educator, I mm. found that to be a very hopeful moment. Mm. I mean, a, sa- a very sad situation. I mean, yes. <laughs> but, but the Colton yeah. Boshi and Tina Fontaine thing were happening about the same time. Yeah. But it was, I thought, meaningful that this incredibly diverse group of students with, with, with some First Nations representatives, but uh, uh, overwhelmingly right. f- from everywhere else on the planet, yes. um, would, would come together. Yeah. So um, that was hopeful. Well, we have to take a pause. So uh, we're going to take uh, a break. But we will be right back on Moment of Truth and Element FM with our guest today, uh, James Cunningham, right after this. And we're back on Moment of Truth. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. Thanks for joining us today. Our guest in the studio on Moment of Truth is James Cunningham. He is a Canadian filmmaker, writer, and educator. And we've been talking predominantly about some of the projects he's worked on and some of the things that he's been involved with in terms of uh, Indigenous issues over the years, his time spent at Seneca College teaching students and uh, some of the the views and things that he has has seen. Uh, He's also worked on uh, a film and and project for Duncan Campbell Scott, and uh, we were talking about some of those things as well. James, you also brought up uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould and the situation that's been happening around that situation. Uh, something that, that I was wondering about, you know, you were talking about uh, weaknesses in journalism. Uh, I'm also, though, wondering about, you know, and I remember hearing some of the comments about Jody Wilson and, and trying to sort of belittle her uh, to some degree, I guess, uh, break down, uh, you know, the, the reasons uh, uh, to build up the party more. You know, she was claimed as not being one of the party long-term uh, uh, people, and she was pointed out as being indigenous, and, you know, maybe that uh, played in, in some uh, way. And, and I'm wondering about spins. You know, stories are always being spun. Um, what do you think the, uh, the takeaway is, is from a journalistic perspective on all this, from the spin perspective? Well, I 
disagree profoundly with some of the spin. Mm. The spin you just characterized, mm-hmm. it's true. It's out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, Lawrence Martin is a prominent columnist with the Globe and Mail, mm. and um, he has a right to his opinion. Um, I disagree profoundly with the opinion that he expressed last week on this mm-hmm. matter, that her disagreement with Justin Trudeau uh, represents, um, you know, his um, fundamentally her not being part of the team mm. because she is indigenous. Mm. I found it to be a very flimsy argument. People can read the column and decide for themselves. There were other commentary that I found, um, certainly that I I thought was responsible journalism, whether I agreed with it or not. So um, I think the J- Jody Wilson-Raybould situation um, – is a moment to look at the quality of journalism that's being done about it. And given that it is because of her being an Indigenous woman, Mm. will be seen through that filter. Mm -hmm. Is it being looked at in a way that is detracting from what should be, uh, above all, a political and legal analysis? She was the Attorney General Mm -hmm. of Canada. It was Justin Trudeau who made her the Attorney right. General of Canada. She thought she was doing her job. Right. Whether she was from Mars or from British Columbia doesn't right. really matter. Right. What is the tests that he should have met as Prime Minister? Mm. And was she doing her job appropriately as Attorney General? Um, I think um, while there's been some very good journalism about that, there's also been a lot that kind of muddies the waters mm. cause, because of the things that you raise. So I think it's a bit of a mixed bag, but I think we better look at it very carefully. And I suspect, as many do, that the story isn't over yet. Right. So uh, we'll see we'll, we'll see where it goes and how it's how well it's covered. Um, do you mind if we, we explore this a little bit more? Just- well, I just want to caution everyone. And, uh, you know, I am not a day-to-day political journalist Understood. these days in Ottawa. I, I have been, yeah. but, that's, but that was decades right. ago. And and I followed the situation yep. carefully, and I followed as a journalist, mm-hmm. uh, Bill Wilson for years. Right. I mean, I was on the constitutional beat for CBC Radio, so I know about the family. Um, but I am not there. I have no right. access to documents. Right. I did read the law right. uh, on deferred uh, uh, prosecution agreements, which mm-hmm. I think more journalists should actually do. Right. Hello, journalism students. Read the damn law. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm not an expert. No, no, understood. And, yeah. and it's more for conversational yeah. purposes. Um, and it's just this 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 line between being an indigenous woman in that position and just doing the right thing, because it's very easy to say, "Oh, well, she's indigenous, and that's why she's sort of falling back." But but more politicians should be and are elected to do their job. And and when I heard this thing about well. You know, following the party line, holding up the party for re-election rather than what is right. And then, the you know, it gets even more muddier, as you pointed out, that she's indigenous. So that muddies even more because, you know, she's she's that element gets into there. But, you know, uh, just doing the right thing. It, could it be as simple as that? Why could it not be as simple as that? Well, certainly it was for Jane Philpott. Yeah, yeah um, exactly. <laughs> and... Um, so I think that you raise a very fundamentally important question, and I and I would hope that uh, journalists take a breath, 
and ask themselves, am I shading this mm. because of assumptions that I'm making mm. about Ms. Wilson-Raybould's indigeneity? Mm. Um, if they are, they better think again because that is muddying the waters. Um, you know, so we will we'll see where it goes as far as doing the right thing. I mean, I think that is a very important standard. And um, I think it's been articulated. Well, certainly, I don't think either of us can speak to that as eloquently as Jody Wilson-Raybould mm. mm-hmm. did herself mm-hmm. at the committee, even with the constraints that were on her right. at that time. Sure, It was an extraordinarily accomplished, I thought, and courageous performance. Mm. And uh, to hear her integrity uh, mm. or her devotion to party and country mm. somehow in, uh, challenged because right. of her loyalties to her indigenous past, that to me is rather revolting. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, I risk saying that if you replace the word indigenous with Jewish or Catholic or African Canadian, and you start making assumptions about politicians based on their loyalties to another community, Mm. that would be scandalous. So let's be very careful as storytellers Mm. about how we're interpreting this particular situation in light of the fact that, yes, the Attorney General was an Indigenous woman, Mm -hmm. but she was the Attorney General of Canada. Right. Thank you. Uh, So... You mentioned diversity in the classroom. You said you're getting more uh, more students from other places around the world that are not necessarily as surprised to see some of the issues in in terms of of, of how Canada has treated Indigenous people. Um, and and of course, you you mentioned the the TRC and gave some credit to that in terms of what's happening. Um, I, I guess, do you think that uh, that diversity is is going to help moving forward in terms of the future of journalism and how stories are being told? Well, I hope so. I guess it depends on how well those diverse journalists do their jobs. Um, and let's be clear, I, I retired from Seneca College last summer, so I mean, I have recent uh, experience, but um, and I'm doing a, a lot of lecturing at various places, mm. um, but I'm no longer an employee of uh, Seneca College. Right. I was happy to be one for a, a long period of time. Um, I hope that diversity reflects itself in newsrooms. As we know, in corporations around the country, unfortunately, we still skew to um, overwhelmingly male uh, more often than not and you know old immigrant community Canadians that will change over time hopefully as it does and as in journalism and elsewhere the extraordinary diversity of this city uh, and country is better reflected in uh, Mm. positions of power Mm. it will uh, mean that we uh, do a better job of telling stories to each other and and it, in areas where that diversity is um, impinged, you know, whether it's indigenous settler relations, whether it's uh, relationships between police and ethnic communities in various places in Canada. Um, hopefully, um, as storytellers are better, are, are more representative of the actual composition of the country, mm. uh, including indigenous storytellers, that uh, we'll all 
be doing a better job. Mm. Um, that's my hope. And certainly that was what, uh, as a journalism educator, uh, myself and my colleagues um, were uh, trying to promote. Mm. Um, there's a couple more things I'd like to, to talk about in that regard. But I, but um, I also want to, don't want to stay focused on this completely. I, I'd like to talk uh, partly about your your early past, uh, your 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 uh, connection to the to nature and canoeing, and it must have taken you on some interesting uh, uh, trips. I'm sure, even on some of the rivers in in this part of the country. I'm sure, um, which again, I go goes back to to could go right through some some treaty t- areas and and lands and indigenous uh, communities, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I, I I'll just want to ask you this. Uh, I'd like to play some music, too. I don't want to talk about music and, and your influence and how you picked some of the stuff that you, you have got here that, that is interesting. But um, do you think we had a we had a we spoke we spoke to a couple of, of politicians on the show and um, and I asked them, I asked the one specifically how familiar they thought politicians were with the treaties. And 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 he he said, probably not that familiar. Do you think journalism students are becoming more familiar with the with that side of this in that the, the relationship between Canada and Indigenous people is, is relying and it comes from the treaties? I don't think they're sufficiently aware. And I think that while, um, you know, the province of Ontario, at least the previous government and in other parts of the country, and certainly the recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission are very clear on this. Mm. Uh, studying Indigenous history and learning about treaty relationships should be the part of the um, basic education of any student going through elementary, secondary, and post-secondary education Mm. in Canada. Um, It ain't happened yet. Um, It's improving. There are more courses available. And, you know, the basic Canadian history courses, which, depending on the professor and depending on the curriculum, emphasized or didn't um, these matters. Now, I think, we, you know, we, we have our marching orders from the TRC. Mm. We need to do a better job. Mm. Um, but we're not there yet. There's a lot of work to be done. And um, from what I don't know the precise details, but certainly my friends in education say that the um, current government in Ontario, for example, uh, is de-emphasizing mm. that. I mean, we saw... When Mr. Ford was sworn in, it's my understanding, there was no territorial acknowledgement, mm. um, things like that. Mm. So, um, I mean, you know, I may be wrong, but I think that's my memory is correct in that. Mm. So, um, it's going to take an effort. Mm. I mean, you, you know, it's about decolonization. It's about consciousness raising. It's about truth before reconciliation. Mm. And educators and journalists are fundamental to that task, but they're going to have to know that it's part of their task. Right. Um, Willie Dunn. Hey, <laughs> one of my great tell, heroes. Tell me about your, <laughs> how did you get it, get uh, turned on to Willie Dunn? Well, I think it was Gil Cardinal said, James, or Jamie, as he used to call me, you got to watch The Ballad of Crowfoot. So uh, I watched The Ballad of Crowfoot, and I think probably, um, I can't imagine six months goes by where I don't watch it again, Mm -hmm. and that was over 20 years ago. I think it's an extraordinarily beautiful cinematic masterpiece. Mm. 
and should be shown in every classroom in this country. And I certainly showed it in every Canadian history class that I taught. Wow. And um, so Willie Dunn was a masterful uh, songwriter, um, great filmmaker. Mm. um, And I had the, when um, the night before Stephen Harper did his apology over residential schools in Parliament, Mm. and I was invited by people at the Assembly of First Nations to be um, in the gallery, which I was very honored. So I was in Parliament on that day, the night before the AFN and Phil Fontaine was the national chief at that time. They had a reception, um, celebration, uh, recognition of survivors, an evening Mm. uh, at one of the hotels in downtown um, Ottawa. And lo and behold, um, out comes Willie Dunn. <laughs> Sits down in a chair and does the Ballad of the Crowfoot. Oh, wow. You know, which happens how many verse, verses? Like, <laughs> yeah. it's the history of Western Canada. Right? Yeah. It's like 20 plus <laughs> verses or something. Right? He's got no teleprompter. He's got no word mm. sheet. He just does mm. the whole thing. Extraordinary. What a performer. And he was and not- a great player too. Oh, amazing guitar player. And not at that point a young- person by any yeah, means yeah. and not, I don't think a well person right. and he died a few years later. So it was amazing. Mm. So, uh, muchisimas gracias, which, uh, Willie Dunn, what a, what, what a gift, what a brilliant, brilliant, uh, songwriter. So he's just always been with me since right. the 1980s. I only got to see him once, mm. but uh, it was amazing. I had the pleasure of seeing him uh, perform on six nations at, at, uh, what was called the concert for Conestado which was uh, right around uh, when uh, the, the Caledonia situation broke, and there was a huge concert afterwards. Mm-hmm. It was a fundraiser, and uh, not many people knew about it, but Willie Dunn actually performed there. It was wonderful to be able to see him. And uh, it, we're going to play that song. Now, it is a long song. It's seven, almost eight minutes long, so we, we're going to take a break. We're going to go uh, take our break, do our commercial break. We're going to go right in to the Ballad of Crowfoot by Willie Dunn, so you can hear this, and then we'll come back and talk more with James Cullingham right after this. Willie Dunn and the Battle of Crowfoot on Element FM. Uh, long song, a great song, a great artist, uh, and uh, we both my guest uh, this morning, James Cullingham, and I self had the pleasure of seeing him perform. And uh, if you don't know Willie Dunn, you should definitely check him out. He's a wonderful performer and great guitar player, to say the very least about that man. Um it's, uh, it's been great having uh, James in here this morning. Uh, James is a Canadian filmmaker. He's also uh, he's been in journalism uh, and taught journalism, uh, film. He's made some uh, wonderful documentaries. We've been talking uh, a lot about Indigenous issues, um, how things have changed, uh, how he has seen things over time. Uh, James, you don't mind, I'd like to ask you a question about the stories, something I've heard of late in terms of stories around Indigenous issues. Um, and, and I know that, you know, we've talked about the TRC and how it's, it's kind of like a game of catch up to some degree in terms of trying to make sure we, we do justice uh, and that the, that journalism is doing justice to this, to the stories. I've also heard that, that some people are getting a little bit, uh, uh, another indigenous story, you know, like they're, it's overload. It's becoming overload. Have you heard any of this at all? I haven't um, experienced or heard any of that kind of pushback um, so far, but it wouldn't surprise me. 
Um, I am concerned that some young journalists and some um, more experienced journalists are saying, at times I've heard this, well, we have to have an indigenous journalist tell that story right. or else you know, we can't tell it. Mm. That to me is anti-journalism. Mm. Right. Journalists should tell stories. Right. Right. They should tell them well. Mm. Um, I was on a panel at Ryerson University um, late last year with Duncan McHugh, mm. CBC journalist, lawyer. Yep. Um, and, you know, he said that that impulse horrified him. Mm. You know, he said, we don't want people to stop telling stories. <laughs> we want people to do stories properly. <laughs> yes. And uh, so I think uh, I'll, I'll, I, I agree with Duncan. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, thanks for, for throwing that in there. So, listen, you're an active outdoor person. Uh, canoeing uh, has been a, a big part of your life. How yeah. did you get interested in that? Well, some people took me on the Des Moines River, uh, which flows into the Ottawa from um, the woods of Quebec mm. uh, in the vicinity of uh, of Lake Temiskaming, mm. but going south. And I just, uh, I had already uh, paddled somewhat, but as we say in French at that moment, j'étais mordu, I was bit. Mm. And uh, they had uh, been with uh, Wanapate and Tomogamy. Um, I was between Trent and Kenora, but I had some experience. I began to get more, and then I became a canoe trip leader mm. out of Wanapate. Mm. And I uh, had some extraordinarily wonderful trips. I led uh, a group of people down uh, the Winisk River to Hudson Bay. Mm. And, um, yeah, it helped form my understanding of the country and uh, shaped my uh, understanding and whet my appetite to learn more about the First Nations Mm. communities I was encountering, whether it was in Tomogamy or in northwestern Ontario or in Quebec, places where I was um, tripping. And, Mm. you know, these weren't extraordinarily ambitious trips, but Mm. they were pretty ambitious. I mean, Mm. not everyone gets to paddle to Hudson Bay. Well, you know, I got to do it. And it was a wonderful, wonderful experience as a young person. And, uh, you know, I continued with my children and with my wife and, you know, um, I paddle to this day. The person that I started as long as the river's slow mm. with, Peter Raymont, White Pine Pictures, he and I go on a canoe trip every summer. So, um, you know, it's been, uh, it's it's fundamental to my um, appreciation of life, of nature, and my understanding of the country. So it's given me a lot. It, it's a very uh, reflective way of, of looking at the world it, when you're in a canoe and it's just you, the water, and the canoe, and the paddle, uh, and very quiet, and you're getting to see the world from a very unique perspective, I think. Yeah. I haven't been able to write this or express it to the um, extent that I'd like to or as well as I'd like to, but I think the perspective from the stern of a canoe on a river in Canada is critical to understanding Canada. I mean, other people have said that in different ways, mm. but once you've done it mm. and once you realize the challenges and once you realize the perspective that one gets, the challenges, the difficulties, uh, the danger uh, mm. inherent with that, mm. then you really uh, get an understanding, uh, an appreciation of the people who for thousands of years uh, thrived mm. in those conditions mm. mm-hmm. and um, and of the the bounty of, uh, of nature that you can really, uh, 
You're certainly not going to get that experience from a car or a train or an airplane. Right. But you will in a canoe. Yeah. And you will carrying a canoe. Yeah. You know, Nastawagan is the, I believe, Ojibwe word for the series of trails through Ojibwe and Cree territory in mm. what is now Ontario and Quebec and mm. um, eastern Manitoba, I imagine. Mm. And, uh, you know, the, to follow those trails that have been used for thousands of years, right. uh, which you will on a, canoe trips, right. uh, gives you an understanding of the country. Yeah. Uh, have you spent much time or, uh, on uh, Manitoulin Island at all? Um, I used to spend a fair amount of time in Manitoulin Island mm. and um, work with people associated with the Bajamajig uh, Theater at oh, yeah. yeah. And now um, a group of historians that gets together regularly through York, the History of Indigenous Peoples Network, mm. they have very close ties to, the, I think it's the... It's called the Ojibwe Cultural Center, mm. which is at Wakomakong. Mm. So I continue to have a relationship, but I don't go um, as often as I'd, I'd like. I, I, it's, I'm overdue to actually go back to Manitoulin. Maybe you prompted me to do so this summer. <laughs> yeah, well, okay, I'm going to follow that advice. It's been a while since I've been there, but I find it one of the most, uh, I don't know, rejuvenating places that I can, uh, you know, I always find myself uh, uh, feeling as as I say, rejuvenated every time I leave that place. Well, as the people at Wiki will tell you, you know, it's unceded mm. indigenous land, and it yeah. certainly is. It's, <laughs> it's an amazing place. That's very true. Yeah. Uh, listen, we're, we're quickly running out of time, but we do have some, uh, some time to talk about a few other things. What about maybe some projects or things you've got coming up that you're working on uh, in the future? You say you, you, you retired from, uh, from Seneca last year. Uh, what are you keeping yourself busy with? Um, writing, lecturing. Um, I've been promoting a film that we finished last summer about the Toronto jazz musician, Jim Galloway. Yeah. Jim Galloway yeah, at yeah. Journey in Jazz. Mm-hmm. Just got back from the Glasgow Film Festival where it had its uh, UK premiere. That was a lot of fun and mm. successful. I'm developing a film on uh, refugee journalists okay. that uh, I hope to be, uh, will be working again with my friend and colleague, Alex Williams, the director of The Past System. So we're... Uh, in, I was a national director of the Canadian Association of Journalists, and I did some work on, um, you know, the situations that has led a number of journalists from Mexico, Turkey, Syria, among other places, to be refugees in Mm. Toronto. Mm. So we're um, developing a film about their stories and about the threat to journalism in Mm. the the countries that they come from. So um, keeping very busy and uh, about to move Oh, to Nogojiwanon, otherwise known as Peterborough, Ontario. So my wife and I are busy with that as well. Oh, yes. That's a nice area. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, many First Nations up in that area as well. Yep. Uh, well, all the best with that uh, with that move. Um, it's, it's, like we said, it's a beautiful area. Yeah. Um, now, you said writing. What uh, What writing is that that you're working on? Well, I have a piece that I think will be published Wednesday about the Jody Wilson-Raybould situation oh, okay. in, uh, in, a, in active history, uh-huh. um, which is a, a website. Um, title speaks for itself, Active History. Mm. And um, I'm also turning my dissertation into a book manuscript. So okay. there will be a, a book about Duncan Campbell Scott and a French politician and uh, anthropologist named Jacques Sustel comparing these two kind of eminent liberals and their um, their uh, liberals of the small L sense, mm. respected members of their intellectual class. Um, 
and their place in the history of their countries. So I'm working on that. Mm. It's, you also do uh, presentations, I believe, or, or those kind of things, or yep, speaking I, engagements? Uh, I'll speak wherever I'm invited. I was at Trent's uh, in mid-February as part of their Provo series on reconciliation. And um, I have a couple other things um, in the offing um, going forward. I'm presenting the Duncan Campbell Scott film, by the way, mm. is being screened at the uh, Leaside Public Library on April 2nd. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you very much, James Cunningham, for coming in today and being our guest. And we look forward to hearing more about what you're doing in the future. Thanks again for coming in. Thank you, David. Take care.